Hello and welcome to Breaking Ground on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon, the show where we chat to industry experts to get a view on what's happening on the ground and to learn about new trends emerging within the construction industry. The show is brought to you in partnership with Place Engage, a data-driven platform for more successful public consultation and community engagement for your next development project. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Costello, Capital Projects and Infrastructure Lead with PwC. Robert, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm delighted and thank you so much for joining us today just to take us through what to me is quite a complex area and um, I, I'm hoping that you'll be able to take us through what the impact of the new infrastructure guidelines are. So you might just talk us through those. Yeah, perfect. I, I might kind of take it a bit of a step back to contextualise things uh, for you in the audience, because there might be some people here who are kind of like, well, what are the infrastructure guidelines? What do they do? Um, and why are they important to me? Um, so I, I might kind of give you that bit of context and then we can talk a little bit Please. about about the changes uh, that have, have come to play in, in um, just before Christmas they, they came out. Um, I guess if I was to go back to June of 2018, um, the government announced uh, what what they refer to as Project Ireland 2040. Um, and Project Ireland 2040 is two things. Uh, one is the national planning framework, and the national planning framework is all around national strategic outcomes for the country and strategic investment priorities. And it's got 10 different outcomes and priorities. And a lot of it's around things like compact growth, enhanced regional, regional accessibility, sustainable mobility, um, high quality international connectivity, those types of things. And that, that feeds into um, local plans, town plans, city plans, and trying to get that growth uh, in across the country. Um, married into that more recently would have been the, the Climate Action Plan and all of our targets for, for sustainability and decarbonisation in uh, energy, transport, agriculture and the built environment. Um, so that's all, all factored in as well. Uh, and then on the other side of Project Ireland, which is the bit that kind of links into the infrastructure guidelines, um, is the National Development Plan. Now, the National Development Plan is a 10-year plan for capital investment in the country. And when that was launched in 2018, um, it was launched on the basis of a projection of population growth in the country of 1 million people by 2040. Um, and also, um, about 100 billion or so of investment across all sectors but the main ones i would say um, and this is government exchequer funded uh, investment uh, would be transport healthcare housing um be the kind of the, the the key areas and then there's obviously energy and renewables but some of that gets funded by by the customer um and then there's other areas like arts and, and, and various different things education as well a big part of it um so all of that is effectively a list of projects and programs those projects and programs have to get government funding in order to be delivered um, and there's different ways of, of the government funding them um, but essentially they have to be built um, and in order to get that government funding uh, you have to go through a process which previously would have been a business case process uh, and then in 2019 the public spending code was announced um, and that is a gated process for uh, getting access to capital expenditure from government potentially blending that with other funding from other um, areas and then delivering the projects through a procurement process um, uh, that is effectively a government funded project. Um, 
that that whole public spending code process was formalised on the back of uh, the children's hospital. It was one of the recommendations into the review of the new children's hospital. PwC actually would have done that review. Um, and the recommendations were that although there were business case processes in the past, they weren't robustly used and they weren't uniformly used across uh, across government. Public spending code came in that uh, said the kind of stage process for, for all of that. Um, early stages around strategy, so it's linked to policy. Next stage, you're into preliminary business case. Then you're into more procurement detail design and then final business case. Um, that was all great. Nice shiny document. Great stuff to be delivered, you know, um, and, and processes to follow. I guess the big challenge was that um, we hadn't delivered to the scale that we now have an uh, had an ambition to for a number of years. And in fact, post financial crisis, um, there wasn't that much investment, particularly public money, into um, into infrastructure in the country. So that left a gap in terms of expertise, um, but also in terms of delivery. Um, be that from the construction sector, um, the engineers, the various different technical advisors, the even legal and, and, and financial advisors in some instances, but also the client side. So um, various different delivery authorities um, might have lost people to where or to, to pivot into different sectors. Um, and as well as that, we hadn't really got the governance process in place to be able to deliver on a lot of these projects. So public spending code was launched it took a lot, a lot of people a long time to kind of get up the curve in terms of uh, how it all works and how do we deliver business cases that will actually get us the transport that we need, get us the healthcare that we need. Um, and we're starting to see all that come true now. So people have, have done their early stage business cases, they've gone through an approvals process, and they're into procurement in some instances, and there's new projects starting to come through that process. The big challenge we have with all of it is that the governance around it has probably become excessive. Um, there's a lot more governance uh, in place, particularly for the larger scale projects. And some of that governance is very valuable. Some of it can be timely and isn't always as valuable. So we're seeing examples of, of projects that are going into that process and not coming out for 18, 24 months. You know, and you add that into a already challenged planning process and everything else, and that creates lots of risk and challenge. Um, so last year, in, in March of last year, the government made an announcement around the infrastructure guidelines, which was a plan to try and streamline the approach um, and also clarify some aspects of the public spending code. Um, and that that's something that they had worked on in consultation um, deeper led uh, Department of Public Expenditure because it's, it's their area, but in consultation with government departments and all the various different uh, authorities that are responsible for delivering these projects. Um, and I guess the result of that then was the infrastructure guidelines that got released just before Christmas. Uh, so, so yeah, so that, that's the kind of the context. I guess what has changed compared to what was there before, um, I would say there's kind of not a massive amount of change, but some of the changes will hopefully streamline it. Um, so the first change is around the approving authority. So this is linked to the governance and there's real confirmation within it now to say that the approving authority is at the government level. So ultimately the, the, the person accountable for these investments and these projects is the government department. 
and that government department is headed by a secretary general who's the accounting officer. That's it. That's clarity that, that kind of says, look, that person is responsible. So that helps you with accountability and sign off for, for, for some of this money. Um, the next piece then is clarity on some of the requirements on the preliminary business case. And then within that, they've, they've actually included some additional pieces around um, uh, around decarbonisation and um, a measurement of carbon, which is obviously an important part of getting your capital funding, particularly if you're doing new build projects into into the future. Um, the next bit then was really around the um, external assurance process, um, streamlining and enhancing that in, in a way uh, so that that can be quicker. Um, and also there's clarity on when the external reviewers review various different business cases. Um, and then the final one, and I think the most fundamental one, is the introduction of what they call a detailed business case. And that's very much around once you've done your, your business case, um, you've, you've kind of proven the project to government to say, look, this is the money that we need. This is the way we want to deliver it. This is who we want to help us deliver it. Um, that government say, OK, crack on now and, and, and go and deliver it. And to do that, you have to enter into a contract. You have to run a procurement process. You have to identify a whole plan around around the benefits and realization of those benefits for the project. And uh, you have to effectively write the commercials of all of that um, and bring in the appropriate people to, to help you do that. Uh, and, and that's very clear now in this detailed business case stage. Um, and it also brings in things like uh, consideration of different procurement routes um, so in accordance with the EU guidelines, but also um, different contractual mechanisms that you can consider. Um, and, and one of those would be uh, things like a light or a collaborative contracting, like NEC contracting. Another one would be PPPs, and every project that's over 50 million now has to be assessed for a PPP. Um, but the main one, um, and the one that kind of is still subject to reform, at least according to the infrastructure guidelines, is the construction for uh, works management framework contracts, which are the standard forms of government contract, um, which tend to be fixed price lump sum type contracts, uh, where there is quite a significant amount of risk passed on to the private sector. Um, that's a little bit of a concern, I think, um, but let's see what happens in terms of the the reform on, on, on the CWMF process and then also the CWMF contracts. Um, I think um, it's a bit of a false economy trying to pass on the risk in some of these projects to um, the private sector. Uh, it, it can potentially lead to a lack of competition. It can also lead to uh, uh, failed processes in, in some instances, and we've seen examples of that in the past. Um, but you know, it gives clarity on all that now, and it gives clarity on how you run that process and the route that you take, whereas before there was a bit of ambiguity around around all of that stage of the process. Very good. Robert, thank you so much for taking us through that, because it is quite a complicated thing. And I suppose um, the, the main thing I'm taking from uh, from what you're saying there is uh, the sense of clarity. Uh, that's exactly what was needed. But the context is important for a number of reasons. And it's interesting for me to hear you talk about maybe some of the governance, um, you know, particularly kind of arising out of uh, 2019 in the public spending code, when you describe some of the governance as excessive. And I'd love you to unpack that a little bit, please, because, you know, when we look at some of our infrastructure projects and 
we know some of the project overruns in terms of uh, time and money and, and other other um, issues that have been problematic. You know, a lot of that is bil- is blamed on a lack of governance. So when you talk about some of the governance in that way, are you saying maybe we have overcorrected or there was a tendency to overcorrect? Um, overcorrect or not necessarily ask the right questions in, in some instances. Um, I think uh, overcorrect and, and quite a level of conservatism has certainly been been built in. Um, but also the process, like the, the the way it's set up, there's a decision gate zero, decision gate one, decision gate two. Zero is what they call a strategic assessment report. It doesn't have to go through governance anymore. It used to, so that helps that it doesn't. But when it did, there were examples of projects that, that you write, you know, a 20 page document that talks about the policy and the high level long list of options of what you're going to do to deliver that policy. Um, say, for example, a housing project. That 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 project then would go into a process, um, it would be submitted, and it might come out of that process two or three months later. Um, in the intervening period, um, it would be up to the sponsoring agency or responsible for the project to either continue um, and wait for approval or work in the assumption that they'll get an approval or to stop um, and to uh, basic down tools until um, they get a review. Now we've seen examples of only given housing as a kind of a theoretical thing, but we've seen examples in, in different sectors where actually people submit it and then they just wait and th- they don't crack on with the kind of more detailed assessment of what they need to do. And uh, then they get told an answer um, in two or three months time and then they pick it up again. Uh, whereas actually you should be running all of this together and the quicker that governance, the better. We're not saying that the um, robustness of the governance should be there. It should, certainly should be, but the, the the speed of which it goes through the process is um, is the piece. Um, and just when you talk about um, the speed of the process, obviously we see infrastructure projects as having uh, obviously not just a longer lead in time, but obviously a longer delivery time. And some of these key infrastructure projects we've seen in Ireland have been um, of political interest and the yep. nature of delivering uh, infrastructure projects is almost at odds with the short nature of a political cycle. How much of a problem is that? That's a big challenge. Um, and even this year, it's a particular challenge because we're heading into a election cycle. Um, multi-annual funding, I think, is the biggest challenge in, in that space. And that's when you get into large scale capital projects, be that a large housing development, a new hospital, um, a new transport system. Um, You're into the hundreds of millions, if not billions. And particularly when you're engaging with the private sector on these large contracts, they need certainty that they will get paid. and they aren't necessarily going to get paid over a one-year period. They might be getting paid over a three, four, five-year period, um, which means you need multi-annual funding to uh, to allow for that. Now, that doesn't mean that the cash has to be given to these authorities or departments delivering it, but a funding agreement needs to be in place between central government and those authorities that give certainty to the private sector contractor that the money will be there and available for this particular project. 
otherwise they just won't engage on, on the project uh, um, and it's, it's something that is going to be some you know very very topical i would say in the next next year as we start to see a number of our big projects and um, going through that process um you know it's it's almost confusing for me to hear about the challenges in securing multi-annual funding when as as a as an, a non-practitioner we know the the scale of infrastructure projects so uh how is that protected and built in when say we we have a change in government how is that protected then in terms of the projects that are in play at the moment or is there a possibility that they will that, that they will essentially we have a we have a bit of a um a system in Ireland where we have in the past certainly thrown the baby out with the bathwater when we have renewed political cycles and the reality is in Ireland we could be facing something that we haven't faced in many decades. I mean is that even a possibility? So um I would say that the the risk that the money isn't there is quite low. The the economy is growing um and is proving to be quite resilient even in the context of a global economy where there is a lot of uncertainty um, and it looks set to continue to grow, albeit it'll still be challenged. Um, allied with that then is um, a lot of the corporation tax receipts and the benefits of the um, the boom we've had, I'd say, in, in the, the tech industry in Ireland, uh, the pharma industry, um, a lot of that kind of uh, you know, multinational development that or uh, FDI that's come into the country has all been very be beneficial for us. That may slow down in terms of the the level of receipts that we get, but the growth looks set to continue in the country. And there's there's other things on the horizon that are big opportunities for the country, including things like generation of our um, of electricity that can be sold onto the uh, the market in Europe, for example, and new industrial strategies around around all of that. So all that is really beneficial. That means our, you know, we might we will still go through cycles, but in its broader sense of looking at a twenty year time frame, our economy is going to do pretty well. Um, we'll have growth in people, a lot more people coming in, which will mean we'll need to build more infrastructure. That's a positive thing because people will come in and bring the right skills to to, to add growth to our economy as well. We just need to be set up to be able to house people and to provide the public transport and healthcare and everything else um, to look after our own demographic as, as well. Um, all of that means we need to be really thinking ahead and beyond political cycles in terms of our capital plans. At the moment, we've got a central capital plan, which is that project around 2040 that I referred to, which has got the 165 billion, albeit some of it would have been spent to date. Um, and that continues to be there, but that is looked at every year as part of the budgetary process. Um, it hasn't gone down. It's always gone up every year since 2018. Um, but we've had a history in the past where it has, where, where projects got cancelled um, and, and the money fell away. Um, thankfully, it doesn't look like we're going there anytime soon, but that's always a risk. Um, Robert, you took us very clearly through um you know, I suppose maybe the four key impacts of the infrastructure guidelines, and I appreciate that these were only issued um, before the Christmas break. But if we look towards implementation, 
like where are the where are the challenges going to be on the ground? Like maybe can we turn our attention to procurement for a moment? Do the guidelines go far enough to to address some of the challenges that maybe the industry is experiencing? Uh, no, they they don't. They they give an overarching framework, and I would say to anybody who's implementing the guidelines um, that they can design their approach within the guidelines. So th they don't need to go into a level of detail around telling you the procurement route that you need to take or the contract that you need to follow. Although they do refer to the construction works management framework contract. Um, and that will typically tell you that you have to go down a restrictive procedure um, approach or an open procedure approach, neither of which allow you to engage with the market during the procurement itself. And at the end of it, you ultimately sign up to a fixed price contract for delivery of, of projects. And that, I think, works in the context of small scale, low risk projects um, because the market can deliver them and that's all OK. Um, when you start to get into the 100 million plus uh, value wise and then also complexity wise in terms of not necessarily, you know, uh, standard buildings, uh, maybe like a school, or it, it could be more in the range of a complexity of an acute hospital, or it could be the complexity of a transport system, where you're into more uh, risk sharing mechanisms that have to exist within the contract, uh, or a lot more upfront work to get your fixed price right that might exist in, say, a PPP contract. Um, so all of that needs to be considered as part of that detailed business case stage. Um, and then exemptions need to be or derogations need to be requested from deeper to apply different forms of contracting and then different routes of, of procurement where you would be going to competitive dialogue or negotiation. We're doing a lot more interaction with the market. Um, but it is important to say that every single project um, before you go to procurement, you can consult with the market. You just have to do it in a fair, transparent way. Um, and there's, there, there's very straightforward ways to 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 do all of that that a lot of people across government would be well versed in. Um, just I, I'm conscious of your time and thank you so much for being so generous and sharing. But um, one thing that I I would like to get maybe some clarity for the industry as well, and that is you know around the risk sharing elements because you talk about um the different types of contracting and you know you might even touch maybe on some collaborative contracting and but in terms of industry engagement um how can this be done in a way that does better balance uh, risk because i know it, you know in recent years uh, when i'm speaking to construction leaders you know I, I sometimes i like to ask the basic question like to you what is project delivery what is construction what is it because sometimes it's very interesting for me to hear what what people interpret it as and you know in many cases people will tell me it's it's all about managing people if you can manage people you can get the delivery you can get the projects delivered but increasingly i'm hearing it is about it is about risk allocation and it is about pushing uh, as far um the risk that the risk has come increasingly towards the industry and the mechanism hasn't been there to be able, able to negotiate a fair allocation of that so actually, do these guidelines make it easier for procurers to approach it in a fair way that actually viable projects can be delivered in a way that the, the industry can sustain? If applied correctly, they do. They, they, they don't cut across it necessarily, um, but then it's down to the individual sponsoring agencies and broader government rules um, 
and also capabilities. Commercial capability within sponsoring agencies, I think, is really important. Um, commercial and procurement, so you've got the right people who understand risk um, and, and what that means. Like I, I would always say with risk, risk allocation, um, it's, it's important to allocate the risk to the party best suited to manage that risk. And if you're not doing that, you're not getting the best value out of your project. There are some risks that the contractor can manage. Um, and as you say, it's a lot around managing the people, the materials, um, the build itself. Um, there might be other risks that they just cannot manage that are unknown. Um, they could be to do with the maturity of the design of the particular project. They could be to do with the contamination in the ground that might be unknown. In those instances, that risk needs to be held by um, by the client, the, and, and the client in this case is, is, is in most instances government. So um, a detailed risk assessment is really important and commercial understanding of all of that is, is critical. Um, and that's a bit that, that I would say isn't always there. Um, I, I, well, I, I'm conscious from um, the public spending code in 2019 to today, the construction has faced risks that might have been unprecedented you know when you look at COVID you look at war in Ukraine and how that's impacted materials and um, that has been kind of couched under the language of inflation but it's not really inflation there, there were direct causes um, so these were these were risks that are so far outside of what either party might have been envisaging when they sat down to contract um, you know, is there is there a fairer mechanism to deal with some of, you know, some of those types of challenges? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's about the form of contracting and about the nuances around understanding all of that up front. And if you're entering into a fixed price lump sum contract, which doesn't have adjustments for inflation and you're in a high inflationary environment, that creates uncertainty. And, um, you know, you shouldn't be entering into those contracts if there's too much uncertainty that you're, your company can't hold um, or, or can't. And the other thing that it does, if there is that level of uncertainty, is it pushes up the price. Um, and it pushes up the price in some cases unnecessarily. Because if I'm looking at inflation risk on a particular project and it's quite significant, um, you would take the conservative view, you almost take like a view that a, a bank or, or an equity provider would put into it where you're going, well, um, say inflation is running at 5% for the next four or five years and you, you factor that into your contract. So it's in the fixed price lump sum and effectively then the government is overpaying because if you take out the inflation protection, they're only ever paying for when inflation actually kicks in as opposed to the risk of it kicking in and people might have priced the whole risk into the price in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it can sometimes be a false economy to think that a fixed price contract is going to um, deliver you value for money. Yeah, that's that's um, an important that's an important kind of insight for the for people to take in. And you know, it's interesting in this show over the last number of years, we've talked a lot about the last decade um, of infrastructure and we've seen the impact of that in terms of expertise on the ground to deliver it but we've never actually looked at it in terms of expertise to be able to procure it 
And that's that's a really interesting perspective, maybe, and, and one that is only starting to be addressed now. Um, finally, I suppose, just uh, again, I'm conscious of time and I know we have to finish up now in the next few moments. So just in terms of the key challenges that we know are facing Ireland and, and globally indeed, but in terms of the challenges around uh, climate change, in terms of the need for greater connectivity, uh, as we move towards digitalization and of course being able to embrace renewables that's a lot for the infrastructure sector like where do you see the biggest challenges over the next decade for ireland i think the, the big, we have a huge opportunity i would say uh, particularly with renewables and offshore wind and um uh that whole industrial strategy for for energy in the country um allied to that then i think if we can get our immigration policy right, um, and uh, and that that's about you know attracting people to the country and providing them with the right homes and infrastructure, and then them offering us skill sets that we need um, to deliver on all of this, that it'll work out really well. So this is a huge opportunity there, but we do need people, and we need people in the sector. We need to make the sector attractive for people to. To want to work in um, and to want to deliver, for me, it's it's very purposeful work. Um, you know, you've you've got the uh, uh, some of the infrastructure I can see in the background that I would have worked on in in the uh, in the past. Um, you know, it's it's nice to actually say that that uh, this is something physical that I delivered that makes a difference for people, um, be whatever sector that is. So so it should be a very attractive sector to work in. Um, and I think we need to get that right to get the right people into it uh, to help us with what is a massive challenge in, in terms of delivery of all these things. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. I'm usually the optimist in the room, and I like yeah. that you turned you turned the the challenges of our decade into huge opportunities for Ireland, which of course they can be. So thank you yeah. so much for that. That's all we've time for today. That was Robert Costello, Capital Projects and Infrastructure Lead with PwC. My thanks to show producer Katie Talon and to the production team at Hear Me Roar Media. Also, thanks to Place Engage for making these conversations possible. And thank you indeed for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of Breaking Ground. In the meantime, please be sure to check out all of the other Irish and international real estate and construction shows here on iProperty Radio. 